Chapter 20 A quote relevant to Chapter 20 We shall not cease from exploration, and uh, the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. T.S. Eliot Little Gidding From the Four Quartets Robin Hood's Bay To Great Expectations That is, thirty years of superannuated creativity, I hope. A curious and unsettling mix of emotions and impressions beset me on our final journey together during the short drive to York. The simple pleasure of birdsong with the whispered accompaniment of a gurgling beck was abruptly exchanged for the angry cacophony of rumbling industrial traffic. The clip-clop pace of gypsy life so quickly abandoned to the edginess of commuter timetable jitters. Elation at the refreshing absurdity and delightful quirkiness of our experience gave way to a melancholic emptiness which can surface when something irreplaceable is snatched away or ended. At York we went our separate ways, I to follow the way well worn, Peter and Colleen a path less trod. A few days later I'd find myself at home in subtropical Brisbane. In the months ahead Peter and Colleen journeyed by rail to Sicily. However, before heading towards the toe of Italy, they planned a nostalgic stopover in London, Colleen to revisit Harrods, where she had worked briefly, and both of them to relive a romantic evening at an Italian restaurant in Shepherd's Bush, which they had frequented when they had first met some thirty years before. It was my task to return the hire car to Morecambe. From there I'd catch three successive trains to my sister's house before departing for Australia. After a hasty and oddly unemotional farewell, perhaps Peter and Colleen were also feeling a little glum, I headed westward towards the Irish Sea. With little time to spare, I travelled fast. There was no room for error. It's normal for many Australians to drive long distances, living as they do on an enormous and sparsely populated island continent. As for me, even after living down under for more than thirty years, I still avoid long periods behind the wheel. Even so, I considered the three-hour drive from York to Morecambe lengthy, although none too challenging. On the open road, driving became second nature, and I pondered upon how best to employ the twenty or so years that superannuation statistics suggested I might have left to live. Curiously, the quote, Watch out that progress doesn't poison, came to mind. These are the words of John Ruskin, a social philosopher and art critic who lived in the Lake Districts during the 19th century. Ruskin's concerns are now being realised, and the way of life we currently enjoy may soon end in terminal decline. With overpopulation contributing to global warming and energy depletion, it's difficult to imagine a long-term future in which people living on the other side of the world will have either the financial capacity or freedom of movement to replicate our coast-to-coast -coast odyssey without great sacrifice. For some time I've been thinking about how to influence events so that my grandchildren, in thirty years' time, will be able to travel the world and wander freely across the countryside of England as Peter and I have done. Events have left me a touch pessimistic about the ability of our political leaders to prioritise and respond to events that have become both critical and global in their impact. As a species, human beings may be ill-equipped to successfully coordinate appropriate responses to issues that cross all tribal boundaries. 
our capacity for rational thinking and synchronized worldwide action may be insufficiently evolved to meet the challenges or needs of our time. In a world rife with superstition, in which creationism seriously threatens evolution as a creed for our very existence, I'm afraid we may be doomed to self-extinction. These involuntary musings were soon forgotten when I got lost in the congested maze of one-way streets in Lancaster and was forced to refocus on the task in hand. With each passing moment, the likelihood of catching the train was fading fast. In a Morecambe back street from where we'd hired the car, I unloaded my gear and, as arranged, kicked the car keys under the garage door. The train to Lancaster was due to leave in ten minutes, and I had no idea where the railway station was to be found. I became anxious, and was in danger of violating a hitherto sacrosanct retirement resolution, never to rush. I donned a backpack and heaved my wheeled suitcase towards the main street. Where can I get a taxi? I asked a young couple in a car. When I failed to understand their complicated directions, the bloke said, Get in, I'll take you. By the time the taxi arrived, it was already too late. The train had long gone. I took the cab straight to Lancaster, in the hope of making the onward connection. The taxi was a dilapidated old banger. Its shabbiness caught the mood of decay that had long since overtaken the bright coastal town that Morecambe had once been. British holidaymakers had long abandoned their local seaside towns in favour of the sunny Mediterranean. Morecambe is an extreme case of a seaside town that had failed to accommodate its changing fortunes. Lancaster Railway Station was out of action. The whole place was heaving with a maelstrom of people aimlessly milling about. Hundreds of frustrated travellers were awaiting bus transport to other stations from where trains were operating normally. The taxi driver dropped me at the depot from where the bus to Preston was scheduled to leave. There were no buses to be seen, just a bevy of bemused and anxious faces. On arrival, each bus was mobbed and a lucky few scrambled aboard. Most, like me, remained behind. After a long and unpleasant stint being pushed this way and that, I also became caught up in the mob mania. I was as eager as the next man to be gone from that travel panic hellhole. Finally, the Preston bus arrived. I managed to barge through the crush, stow my suitcase, and clamber aboard to claim a seat. The bus was jam-packed, airless, and stiflingly hot. The journey rough, noisy, and exhausting. For the entire journey, two Indians bellowed into a mobile phone inches from the back of my head. I became so irritated, I could have gladly stuffed the mobile phone down their throat to stifle their enthusiastic grating jabber. It was only shallow breathing, the thought of sweet-scented stillness, birdsong, and prison that stayed my hand. I compromised, settling for a state of suspended animation, with head bowed and fingers stuffed into my ears, a pose reminiscent of Sheila's when, at autumn, nearly two weeks before, she found Peter's lost glasses under the sofa. What a blessed relief it was to arrive at Preston. The personal space and relative calm of the operating railway station was a wonderful tonic for peace of mind. And to crown it all, on learning that the next train to Manchester departed in ten minutes, I felt as though I'd entered Valhalla. I was delighted that fate had conspired to get me back on track by overcoming so much uncertainty. The half-empty train carriage was spacious, spotless, and its motion agreeably soporific, a welcome sanctuary for an edgy traveller. My comfort was complete in a double seat from where I could keep a weather eye on my luggage. 
No sooner had the train pulled out of the station than the carriage reverberated to the melodious rendition of La Marseillaise, the French national anthem. It was a personalised ringtone for a colour-coordinated mobile phone. Nearby, a young woman started talking into the pernicious gadget in a loud and penetrating voice. So successfully did she capture the attention of her fellow travellers that many tried to emulate her brash celebrity. Soon the compartment was filled with a cacophonous brouhaha of one-sided twaddle, bellowed by noise bullies whose brain-numbing ooze curdled the mind and stifled thought. To make matters worse, I was travelling without protection. I left my public transport earplugs 12,000 miles away in Brisbane, Australia. I was keenly aware that my newfound freedom, our swagman's life on the open road, was being surrendered voluntarily, without a fight or whimper. After 18 days strolling leisurely through a rural haven, I'd arrived back where I started and knew, not for the first time, the intrusive, inconsiderate and ill-mannered urban mayhem of the 21st century. But hold on a minute. Calm down. For Peter and me, Wainwright's North Sea Toad Dipping Ceremony wasn't a celebration of something finished. It was a baptism of the reawakened. I'd felt like Rip Van Winkle opening his eyes after years of being half asleep. With each step along Wainwright's trail, my veins had filled with a new and vital brew. Not the sluggish blood of a ready-for-the-box moribund old fart that when spilt turns black and crusts in the sun. No, not that mix. My veins pulsed with a new, lustrous Maserati red blood that oxygenated the brain and descaled rusty parts. The trek had excited my consciousness. I'd trodden underfoot the dreary routine of the newly retired and was alive and for the first time in many years ready for big changes. I'd make sure that Margaret Thatcher's best quote, Don't be a viewer, be a door, meant something to both me and my family. It wasn't just the smell of the flowers, the enchantment of the rolling hills, dales and moors, slow motion walking through torrential rain, being in good company, or breakfast with the Mad Hatter that had made our adventure worthwhile. Those were cherished aspects of the journey, but far from being the big picture. The main feature was the magic of the world's best walk, which had sanctioned a lifestyle free from the myriad details that frequently hold us captive to habitual thoughts and actions. Walking the coast-to-coast -coast path had given my mind the time and space in which to discard unimportant issues and to simplify living. Before setting off from Australia, I'd been overwhelmed by the clutter of my life. I'd felt like a snail, slithering towards the grave, crushed beneath the weight of a household crowned full of possessions, heavy on my shoulders. Along the way, things that had previously seemed so important were forgotten or relegated to a place where they could be attended to in due course. I discovered a newfound comfort with letting things go, and warming as never before to the notion of change. Then and there, on the route to Manchester, in that hellish call-centre train, I resolved to become an ex-grumpy, and live by the lessons learned from the outdoors, and respect the concept of detachment and impermanence. I'd ignore the invasive, cacophonous claptrap that filled the railway compartment, and rest comfortable in the knowledge that soon the train would arrive at my destination, where the ruckus would cease. From now on, I'd engage with the mainstream of life, not merely as a pensioned-off bystander looking off from the sidelines, but as a lively participant. There'd be no more mooching around the house talking to myself. 
I'd be out and about doing interesting and creative things. Now there was a long-term project worth its salt, a true and worthwhile commitment for living, or, to paraphrase Socrates' critique on life, It is not living that matters, but living rightly. Which roughly rejigged becomes, Retirement Blues, goodbye. P.S. It's now no secret that our wandering also challenged Peter and Colleen. Their comfortable but staid existence lost its appeal. They too were determined to inject some high-octane zest into their lives. In no time, Colleen was planning to move house to one in which she wouldn't be such a slave to the garden and her chickens. And Peter was busy researching the next adventure, the 750-kilometre stroll through southern France on the tramped hard pilgrimage path known as the Chem de Saint-Jacques de Compostela. But that's another story. P.P.S. Since returning down under, I found it no easy task to live in the moment on the path towards enlightenment, and I'm sure the Dalai Lama would agree. Try as I must, I still let myself down by getting hot under the collar with those who insist on talking in the cinema, and shamefully, I can't resist standing up and telling them to Please be quiet. You're spoiling the film. Thank you. <laughs>